Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, and we will be reading verses 1 through 11. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Who do you seek? And Jesus said, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear, right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Father, I pray for your light, for your wisdom, for your Holy Spirit to enable that your word be clearly presented today. Father, that it, uh, it would not be misrepresented in any way and that Jesus Christ would be lifted up through all that is done. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we have just uh, spent the last three Sundays in Christ's high priestly prayer. Um, and Christ's high priestly prayer comes on the tail of a very long extended um, teaching session where he is, it's called the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus is uh, teaching his disciples about many aspects of his ministry and of his nature and of what they are to expect in the world. Today we sort of go in a different direction. This is not a didactic, it is not a teaching passage as the Upper Room Discourse is a teaching passage. It is uh, very different than John 17, which it is, in, it is kind of a teaching passage as well, but we are listening in on Jesus' prayer and learning from his prayer, learning really great theology from his prayer. Now we move to a more narrative passage, and therefore a simpler passage. So I've given you an outline that will help us just to progress through what is here. And I think every point of that outline is, is justified. Um, we are moving through a sequence of events. There is a setting here. There is some tension here. There is definite drama. You could make sort of a short story out of this if you wanted. But it is real life. And what I would like to say just by way of analogy that every story has an author. 
And that author is called the author because that person has authority over the story. He invented those characters. He knows exactly what they will do and he has an end in sight. In this passage, we see that this is not merely a story written by a man, even though John recorded what happened. Um, it is, uh, and it is not a story where, where things just happen randomly, randomly and uh, just uh, kind of goes along on its own. But this is a story which was written in eternity past. And the central character of this story is also the author of the story. Jesus is in complete control throughout this entire passage. When he says in verse 4, when, when it says here, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, that is a very key phrase in this passage. None of this happens um, randomly. All of these events, all of these details in here, they are necessary because God's word must be fulfilled and God's word testifies about Jesus Christ. So the title of the message that I've given it today is Grace and Glory in the Garden. We see much evidence of grace uh, in that especially in Jesus offering himself and so that his disciples can go free. We also see glory. We see the power of the name of Jesus, the name the Father has given him when he says, I am. And the vast number that has come to arrest him, the Romans and the, and the, uh, and the temple guard and, the, and Judas, they're, they're, they're conspiring, they're coming against him. And they have no power when he chooses to assert his authority. So there's definite glory there as well. I just kind of picked that title at random. You might pick a different title as we go through here. So as we go to the first, uh, first verse here, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now that seems kind of peripheral, it doesn't seem very important, but we really need to focus on this destination. So the first point, point is the destination. They went to this garden, a specific garden, for a purpose. If you look at some of the details, and especially if you bring some of the other gospel accounts into here, you find a, a, really, a, a really rich a backdrop here in which all this is happening. First of all, the garden, which is not named here, it's only named in Matthew and Mark, the garden is called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane actually means oil press, or olive press, where olives were crushed so that the, the oil would run out of them. Remember in Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus, uh, the Lord says it was the Father's will to crush, to crush, his son Jesus to crush him and in the other synoptic gospels we read about Jesus as he prayed he sweat as it were great drops of blood 
the weight of the wrath of God against the sin of mankind crushed Jesus in the garden. Well, that's in other Gospels, so I'm not going to focus on that, but I just, that's good to have in the back of our minds. Another thing we notice is that they entered the garden. There was an entry point to the garden, and the other Gospels refer to the garden as a specific place, using the word chorion. Now, chorion, it connotes a place that is enclosed, Okay? So there was very likely a wall around this garden to keep thieves out and to keep people from coming and stealing the produce. And there was a gate, probably just one gate, but in any case, there was a limited point of entry. So just keep all of these details in mind. It's an enclosed place. Now there are two theories about where this place would be in Jerusalem. The Latins, or the Western Church, they tend to think that it's a a very small place, only about 50 meters square. Uh, And whereas the the Greek um, stream of the the church, they they have a different location, which is much larger. I kind of think it was a larger place, and we'll find out why in a moment as well. So they entered that garden. They entered into an enclosed place. We also see from passages right in front of us here that it was a place where the disciples went often. They went often there to retreat. Uh, It was uh, something that Judas definitely knew about. So when Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, keep that in mind, this was not just a random place where they would go. They were not going there to hide. They were not going there to somehow delay the inevitable. They were going there to be found, to be trapped by this army that was coming to get them. This was completely planned. This was completely according to the Father's will, including what is not recorded here, which was his act of yielding himself in obedience to the Father. All of this was preordained. So there was this destination. Um, It was a divinely preordained place where they went. And into this destination comes a delegation. Observe what this delegation looks like. Now Judas, who betrayed him, okay, person number one, Judas, false disciple, a betrayer, he's called the son of perdition in uh, John 17. So he's leading them, and he is, he is the one who has gone and instigated, and he has, at the behest of the, the, the scribes and Pharisees, he has gathered this crowd. So there's Judas, who betrayed him, and also knew the place, and he procured a band of soldiers. Now let's, take, let's think what a band of soldiers is. It, the Greek word for band is the, the idea of um, a cohort of soldiers. And the Romans, for, for the Romans, a cohort was, get this, a thousand soldiers. And it could vary in number, but 600 to 1,000 was not uncommon. The Romans were no- notorious for dispatching huge numbers to potentially 
uh, serious situations in order to contain. You could compare that to when, when there's something that happens and you, you, you see in the news uh, the FBI just kind of descends on an area and they bring out full force SWAT teams and all that. They said they sent this vast company of soldiers. That's one reason I think the garden was probably not a very tiny place. Um, in addition to soldiers, there were officers, temple officers. Um, some officers, pardon me, officers from the chief priests. Now these, uh, from the chief priests and the Pharisees, so these officers were like the temple police. The temple was a, a huge structure. It was uh, a very ornate structure. There was lots of gold and precious things in there. And it was very important to the Jews that it was not ever defiled by Gentiles entering in where they shouldn't have been or people behaving in a way that was... Um, was unworthy of the temple. So these guys were there to escort people out. And particularly the guard that came to arrest Jesus, they were trained, or they, the temple police, they were, uh, they were the night police. They were to kind of keep watch over the temple by night. So, and they were sent, they were sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now this is interesting. The chief priests would have been almost exclusively Sadducees. And Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees were not real sticklers for following Jewish tradition. The Pharisees were. And so you had the liberals and the conservatives uniting and coming and descending upon Jesus while they were sending their representatives to do this. So they were behind this whole thing. Now, when you consider this delegation, you've got a false disciple. You've got these uh, basically doctrinally ignorant Roman soldiers. And then you've got religious people sending their minions to do their dirty work. And, and you've got traditionalists and you've got liberals. And they're all descending upon Jesus to falsely accuse him. I think that as we consider even the position of the church and of true believers in the world, we can say these enemies haven't changed. The, the world is still very much against Jesus. The world is still very much against the gospel. So this delegation comes to arrest Jesus. They are led, of course, by Judas. Now this has got to be very intimidating. All of these people descending upon this garden in the quiet of night. Some other details, just so you get the, pic the complete picture. It's a full moon. It's the Pasha moon. The, the, the full moon that marked that particular um, season. So there's lots of light. The Roman sold, or the soldiers and the officers, they also bring plenty of light with them. The full moon is not enough. They're probably expecting Jesus to be hiding under a, a bushel somewhere, you know, in the corner of the garden. Um, of course, he's not hiding at all. He, present, he comes willingly to them. Uh, so there's this delegation, and they're, they're not only are they... 
armed with lamps and torches, but they are armed with weapons. They're expecting some resistance, at least. Of course, they get some, not very much, but they get some from Peter. Now, as Jesus approaches them, it says here in verse 4, he, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? He knows exactly whom they're seeking, but he wants them to say his name. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now this is a declaration. He thought, oh yeah, I'm that guy. Really, in English, this should be rendered, I am. I am. Now, those are only two words. Those are two incredibly powerful words when they are used without qualification because they imply self-existence. And especially when they are said by one who has already made the claim to be called the Son of God. Jesus has gotten into a lot of trouble all through the book of John for his I am statements. He makes two kinds of I am statements. He makes qualified I am statements, and then he makes unqualified I am statements. So I just want to review some of these with you. The qualified un, un, uh, I am statements are these. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. In other words, I am the sustenance that you need for spiritual life. I am the light of the world. Without me, you have no light. There is no other true light in the world. I am the light of the world. So you need food. You need light. I am the door of the sheep. In other words, I am the door where people come in and out and find pasture. I am, I am the door that represents protection. I am also the door uh, through which people can leave out of... Uh, uh, an oppressive out of a out of a fold that is not meant for my sheep, and they can come and they can come into the true fold. So that represents protection and provision. I am the good shepherd. I'm the one who leads my sheep, my people. I am the resurrection and the life. Think what this means to spiritual life. He who believes in me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. How important is it that Jesus is the resurrection and the life for Christians? There is no spiritual life without Jesus. He is the source of all of these things, the bread, the light, the door. He is the shepherd. He is the resurrection and the life. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, he is the vine. We spend a lot of time that in John chapter 15, when, uh, when we saw how the, the, the branches abide, they remain in the vine, and if they remain in the vine, then they bear fruit. If they do not remain in the vine, if they're not organically united through faith with the vine, they are chopped off and destroyed. So these, these statements in themselves, you take them all together, and you gather that Jesus is an incredibly important person. And that these things that he is saying of himself, 
they are available exclusively in Him. He is the source of all of our sustenance. Everything that we need, the direction that we need, the life that we need, the truth that we need, the food that we need, the light that we need, Jesus is the source. But when Jesus makes his unqualified statements, where he just simply says, I am, these are the ones that really get him in trouble. John 8, 58, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they immediately sought to kill him because he said that. And then in John 18, verse 4, Jesus says, I am again. He says, I am. And in the middle of John 13, 19 through 20, he says to his disciples, I am telling you now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he, or I am. So twice to a hostile audience, and once to his disciples, he declares, I am. Why is this little phrase or this little um, subject and verb, why is it so important? I want to read why it's so important from Exodus. Remember that Jesus says that Moses and the prophets and the writings testify of him. Remember on, well, we haven't got there yet, but the road to Emmaus, Jesus, beginning with Moses and the apostles, begins to testify to them all things concerning himself. Let's read the first reference of this term, I am, in the whole Bible. Exodus 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God says, said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. In other words, the one who exists of his very own prerogative, the one who exists outside of any qualification, the one who exists outside of time, the one who exists outside of his creation, the one who always was and always will be, tell them, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, Say to this to the people of Israel, the, God, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Jesus is not merely answering a question. When he says, Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Well, how, do, how can I say that? How do I know that it's just not a, a casual response? Well, you know this because after this deck, after this, so, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to get to that point yet. There's some stuff I have to say here. I want to go into polemic mode for a moment. Joel Osteen has re recently written a book that is a bestseller. It's called Power of I Am. And the thesis of this book is whatever you say to yourself about yourself, if you believe that, you will be that. If you say, I am blessed, you will be blessed. If you say, I am wealthy, I will be wealthy. When Christians or people professing to be Christians use this I am 
phraseology as something to um, justify that by, based simply by believing in themselves, they can achieve whatever they want. They are on, they are on a tightrope over hell. This is a very dangerous place to be. Now, I haven't read that book. I've seen Joel interviewed on Oprah, and I would put that for sure in the category of blasphemy. Another guy, Kenneth Copeland. Imagine Kenneth is preaching to his flock, to his congregation. And he says this, you're all God. You don't have a God living in you. You are one. When I read the Bible where God tells Moses, I am, I say, yeah, I am too. Or here's another quotation. Pray to yourself because I'm in yourself and you're in myself. We are one spirit, saith the Lord. Pray to yourself. Another one. This one from the Believer's Voice of Victory, February 1987. Now Peter said, By exceeding great and precious promises, you become partakers of the divine class. All right? Are we gods? We are a class of gods. So that is, uh, that is some of the blasphemous language used by people professing to be Christians and teachers. You know what? You see these guys do all kinds of dog and pony tricks in their, in their shows. You see, you see Benny Hinn. He will manipulate his congregation through music and through speech and through dynamics of the service. And there's one, one point where he takes his coat and he starts to wing his coat at people. And as he says that, he says, fire, fire, fire. And the, the rows, they just topple over like dominoes. They fall, people fall backward. I want you to observe the difference between that type of manipulation and what we are about to see happening in the garden, where the true I am proclaims his nature and the reaction of the people um, gives testimony to the fact that he truly is God. So in, re in response to this, or as a follow-up to this declaration, I am, I am he, I am God. This is what happens. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. He was standing with the world. He was standing with the enemies of Christ. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now some translations say they fell backwards. But they drew back and they fell to the ground. Two words did this. To potentially up to a thousand people coming to arrest him. These people armed with swords. And armed with, uh, with, with uh, swords and lanterns. And with intent to come and seize him. And take him away and crucify him. Jesus says, I am. And they fall to the ground. This shows that they could not have taken him. If it were not his will that they take him.
No man takes my life from me. He said, I lay it down freely. So Jesus is in complete control here. These people, they come with all of their might and all of their weapons and all of their numbers. Jesus is in control. He is going to fulfill what his father has laid out for him to do. Now this demonstration, after this demonstration, when these guys are picking themselves and dusting themselves off and, and they're trying to recover their dignity... And, you know, they're making sure that they haven't caught themselves on fire with their torches and lanterns and whatnot. And, and you know, they've, they've recovered their sort of macho stance. Jesus asks them again, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Jesus is about to make a distinction, a very important distinction. Jesus answers. He says, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Only one person could go to that cross. Only one person could atone for the sins of man. And in, in uh, separating himself from his disciples, it's like the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. He's making a distinction between those that are being saved and the one who is saving them, between the high priest and the people, if you, as it were, between the sacrifice and the people. It says, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those that you gave me, not one I have lost, not one. So this was something that Jesus had already promised, or he had already um, intimated that he would not lose any of his disciples. Physically, none of them would die except Judas, and that was foretold in Scripture, who was not one of them, but was a son of perdition from the beginning. Um, in John 17, 12 to 13, we read, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Huh. It's interesting, that name, when he says, I am... That's, that name would be a great defense, wouldn't it? All those guys falling down. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So that distinction between Jesus and his disciples is a very important one. Jesus willingly gives himself up to death so that his disciples can live. This is a temporal precursor of an eternal reality. The disciples, the other gospel accounts tell us that they hightail it out of there as soon as they get the chance. They're gone. Strike the, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But Jesus also speaks in defense and he actually gives the order that his disciples be allowed to go. So there is, uh, there is that... Um, Distinction that Jesus makes. Now there's a desperation, a desperate reaction from one of the disciples. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. 
Now, I don't know exactly what's going on between Peter's ears right now. But I'm guessing that he has seen the incredible power and authority of the word of Jesus Christ when he says, I am. And there's just this like force field that pushes all these guys down. Just, ha, now's a chance. I'm going to stand with Jesus. It's like, I see Jesus walking on the water. I'm going to go walk to him. Just call me Lord and I'm coming. And Peter's thinking at this point, it's uh, perhaps well-intentioned, but there's a lot of flesh in there. And Peter thinks, well, now's a great opportunity to defend Jesus. I mean, I said I'd, I'd die with him, so I might as well jump in right now. So he jumps in and he cuts off the servant, or he cuts off the servant's ear. Now, it's possibly it's just the ear lobe. I think the Greek word means just part of the ear. In any case, he reacts violently and, and desperately and impulsively. Have you ever known Peter to do, do or say anything impulsively? Um, this is almost what we'd expect. It's, it's part of his personality, and yet this is part of God's plan as well. This desperation. Um, Jesus is going to show that this is not the way that my kingdom is established. We don't use the method of the zealots. We do not advance the kingdom of God at the tip of the sword. We don't fight with weapons of this world. The weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds. There's some interesting details within this point. I almost made another point, which is called details here, but not enough D's, right? So there's, a, there's some details. No other gospel tells us that it was Simon Peter who drew the sword. Only John. And no other gospel gives us the name of this servant. He's, he's a servant. He's there, you know, carrying water for the temple guard or for the Romans or, or actually it's for the high priest. Uh, he, he's, he's there in a, in a very menial capacity and yet his name is named. Malchus is a servant. There's a certain irony in his name. He is a servant, but his name means king. That's interesting, isn't it? But why is his name named? To tell you the truth, I don't know. But the other one other gospel, I think it's Luke, tells us that Jesus picks his ear up and, and heals his ear. Makes him whole again. Is there perhaps a hint here that Malchus is a name that is beloved to Jesus. Is it possible here that after this encounter, Malchus, having been healed, having, having had been given an ear to hear, perhaps, responds to the grace of God and is drawn into the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel that he is someone that John actually knows? It's possible. I think it's even likely. I don't think there's any other reason for giving his name. And even this servant who is also, whose name means king, um, 
There's, there's royalty in store for all of us. We reign with Jesus. We will reign with Jesus. So, another possible play on words here, or an interesting thing, is Simon's name actually means hearing. And here's Simon, the guy whose name means hearing, cutting off the other guy's ear. And then Jesus putting the ear back on. I don't know. There's all sorts of interesting things I don't have time to explore. Now, final thing, most important thing here is number seven. There is a determination. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I came here for this purpose, Peter. I came here to be taken away. I came here to be whipped and flogged and beaten and mocked and spat upon and to have a crown of thorns pounded down upon my head. I came to have the nails pounded into my hands and my feet to be stripped and lifted up. And Peter, don't try to stop me with that puny sword. The sword is not the weapon that will win the world. The blood is the weapon that will win the world. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What is this cup? This is not a pleasant cup. Jesus says, if there's any other way, let this cup be taken from me. The cup is referred to in the Old Testament as the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath poured out over and upon the sin of man. It is a, it is a grave judgmental thing that this wrath would come upon anyone. And it is no wonder that Jesus prays, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. As Jesus drank that cup of wrath, he also sealed a covenant. And when he drank the Last Supper with his disciples, he said, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, satisfying the wrath of God, receiving the wrath of God on behalf of man, so that the righteousness of God might be imputed to us. So that we might, as he is raised from the dead, so that we might be risen from the dead. Well, we've already read the passage in Matthew in our call to worship. I won't read the whole thing again, but at the end it says, See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. This was a preordained hour. This was a preordained cup. A preordained detention, and Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In other words, there is no way that I will not follow through, that I will not complete everything the Father has given me to do. I will drink this cup. I say it's a determination, not because Jesus had made up his mind that he was going to do this, but because... In eternity past, this had already been planned. Hebrews 10 verses 5 through 7 said this, 
Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. It wasn't the animal sacrifices that were going to accomplish, that were uh, were the true recipients of God's wrath against sin. A body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And I said, Behold, I have come to do your will. O God, it is written of me in the scroll or in the volume of the book. This was determined. Christ was determined to go through it, but this was also determined in the mind of God, in the mind of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that were active in creation. Before the foundation of the world, this plan was established. Jesus would drink the cup. Jesus would be taken from that garden, humiliated, cursed. He would die as a sacrificial lamb for the sin of the world. No man took his life from him. He laid it down freely. One more scripture here. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, he's speaking to um, people who have come out of Judaism and have become believers. He says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in this last time for your sake. So, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This is another way of saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There was intimate fellowship and knowledge and love between Father and Son before the foundation of the world. But he was manifest in these last days for our sake, for the sake of those who would believe in him, who through him are believers in God. Now, okay, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So this is all of what is going on here in the garden. Jesus has declared and demonstrated his deity. He has, in his humanity, he has yielded yielded himself to the will of the Father. He has said, I will drink this cup. He has shown that his kingdom is not to be one that is advanced by sword, And he is showing here as he prayed in, in uh, Acts chapter 17, as he said to the Father, everything I have done, everything I have accomplished what you sent me to do. Knowing all of these things that happened in the garden and knowing if you read ahead in John, and I'm sure you have, If you know the story of what's to come, you know that Jesus does accomplish everything that he said to do.
and that he does cry, it is finished. And for this reason, as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Grace and glory in the garden. One uh, just final observation here. You could make you could make a comparison between the garden of Jesus' submission to the Father and of his obedience to death. You could make a comparison between that and the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a place where the first Adam disobeyed. The Garden of Gethsemane was a place where the last Adam obeyed, where he became obedient to death, where he said, not as I will, but as you will. And for all who believe in Jesus, that is a new beginning. Our hope is not in the first Adam. There is no hope in men. There is wonderful, glorious hope in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage, for, for all that it teaches us. We thank you that Jesus is, was and is the I Am. Lord, that his, his word will call, cause the world to fall backwards. We read in the book of Revelation that he comes to defeat the armies of the world with the word of his mouth. Jesus, we are so grateful, so thankful that you who were in very nature God became a man you became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And you did this because only you, Jesus, could pay for our sins. Only you were qualified. Only you lived perfectly and kept the law perfectly. Only you had clean hands and a pure heart. And you became a man so that as a man you could take upon yourself all of our sin. Lord, as we repent, as we turn from our sin, our sin is taken away from us when we believe in Jesus. It's removed as far as the, as the east is from the west. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I pray that in in this moment, that those who have been freed from our sins, Lord, those who, for whom you died, for whom you wept, Father, that we would, or Jesus, that we would give you glory, and that we would live as your willing servants. Father, we pray for any who are here who might be standing in the ranks of Judas or the soldiers or the religious people. 
standing in judgment, unaware of who Jesus is. Father, that through your spirit, through your word, that you would reveal Jesus to them. Or that they might know that you, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through them, through him. I pray this in Jesus' name. We're dismissed for supper.